Welcome to Moments in Leadership, a podcast where you will hear firsthand about the careers of senior military leaders as they share their own unique and individual experiences. Moments in Leadership will immerse you in real life stories where you will learn about the challenging situations these accomplished leaders faced and discover the lessons they learned early in their careers that were the most influential to developing their overall leadership style. And now, here's your host, retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel David B. Armstrong. Before we get started on this episode of Moments in Leadership, I just wanted to say thanks for listening. Whether you're a first-time listener or you've been following along from the start, I'd really like to know what you think about the show and, of course, any suggestions that you have for improvements. But here's how you can help me keep this project going, and it's costless. If you could subscribe, leave a five-star review if you think it's worthy, leave a quick review if you listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews, the subscriptions, the five stars, it really makes it easier for others to find the show, and it helps a lot more than you think. Finally, you can always find me on Instagram and Facebook under Moments in Leadership, or you can email me at themilloffice at gmail.com. That's the M-I-L office at gmail.com. Shoot me any suggestions or even ideas for future guests. I'd really appreciate it. On this episode, I continue my interview with retired Lieutenant General Bob Boomer Milstead. And in part one, we talked about some ideas about how it's okay not to know the answer. We talked about the difference between leadership and management. And we talked about the idea of giving second chances and what's the difference between a sin and a crime. But in part two, we continue on with our conversation about his leadership philosophies. And we talk about things such as risk-taking. And he makes a great analogy about baseball players having a 400 batting average would land them in Cooperstown. But in reality, if you were only a 40% achiever or a 60% loser, you'd probably be fired out of the military or anywhere else. He talks about how it's not appropriate as a leader to be changing your expectations over time, and he uses an analogy about the size of home plate in baseball never changes from Little League all the way up to the pros. He spends a great deal of time talking about one of his tenets of leadership that he calls the HEP principle, which stands for humor, enthusiasm, and patience. He goes into a great story about giving a second chance during combat when he was a commander and some of his pilots were involved in a fratricide incident. We spent some more time talking about the concept of mavericks in the military, and he admits that he's one himself. He wraps everything up by saying, lead like you want to be led, which I thought was fantastic. Now, not to belabor the introduction, but there's one part of this interview that requires just a little bit of context. See, back in 1989, the Marine Corps was introducing a new concept called maneuver warfare, which was basically trying to get the Marine Corps and its leaders to think about different creative ways of achieving missions. The concept of maneuver warfare could fill several books. In fact, it does. But to boil it down for the purposes of context for this podcast, it sought to move away from the concept of attrition warfare through superior firepower and look to disrupt and disorganize the enemy through surprise and confusion while also seeking tactical advantages on the battlefield. It requires young leaders to think creatively because they're not told how to do something, only what they're expected to achieve why, and why it's important to the bigger picture. Think of it as moving away from providing someone with a Lego kit of a ship that's complete with instructions and pictures, and instead handing them a tub of Lego pieces and saying, hey, build a ship that can carry troops and landing craft, and that's it. 
at one point in my time as a lieutenant at the basic school, which is where all new Marine officers begin their career, I was placed in charge of a small unit of other lieutenants during a field exercise that was supposed to go out and scout the defenses of an enemy location that was being led by a company of enlisted instructors that were also assigned to the basic school. Now, since maneuver warfare is supposed to give me the license to use whatever creative means that were at my disposal to seek those tactical advantages on the battlefield, I decided to disguise myself as a captain and an instructor at the basic school, walk right up into the middle of the defensive position of the enlisted company and ask for a briefing on the defenses. Well, it worked, but <laughs> that level of creativity had not yet been fully embraced by all the captains who were running the exercises. And while the intelligence gathering and the ensuing attack were a complete success, I found myself in some pretty unpleasant hot water for such a junior officer. As anyone can imagine, the story made its way around the basic school very, very quickly. And since General Milstead was an instructor there at the basic school while I was beginning my time there, he knew the story and referenced it as part of this interview. So with no further ado, here is part two of my interview with General Milstead. General Boomer Milstead, who in part one, we had a great conversation where we talked about some of the early parts of his career as an aviator in 169 and his time with Second Anglico, which was really kind of First Anglico. But in order to understand that inside joke, you'll have to go back and listen to part one and some of some of the things that he learned. We talked about how there's a huge difference between management and leadership, talked about what leaders should do when somebody that's working for them responds to an inquiry with, I don't know. Pretty fascinating conversation there. So make sure you go back and check that out. But we wrapped up part one, sir, with talking about second chances. And you said something very interesting about there's a huge difference between a sin and a crime. And then I kind of lobbed the potato about, are we encouraging people to not take chances in training because the opportunity for second chances are so few and far between. The zero defect mentality, which was a popular term back when you and I were in the 90s, I think that that probably still exists. Maybe it has a different term now, but I just wonder in, in a world that could potentially require a new creative way to fight future battles with technology being where it is and, and enemies and potential enemies in the future and what, you know, the fact that we could end up in a, in a peer-to-peer situation. Are we stifling creativity? Are we stifling the creative leadership that is going to make us successful in future conflicts? Because careers can be so severely impacted by a mistake and the, the lack of second chances. I think some people would say, could make an argument we are. I know you had Mel on and Mel Coyote, you know, six. I mean, CACs, where else do we do that sort of thing? Live fire, maneuver under live fire. You know, Mel probably w- would have been a great guy to, to address that. I have heard that argument before, but I've been off active duty now for pilot math six years, you know, almost five years. So did I ever observe it flagrantly? No. But have I have I read things and have I heard those arguments made? Yes. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have a personal experience to where I felt stifled. As a squadron commander, we flew the majority of our time at night which is the most dangerous time to fly, of course. 
But I had the opportunity. We were in Korea. We would fly at night. There were two other squadrons up there, and neither of them would fly at night. We flew almost exclusively at night because I said, I want you guys to be comfortable over terrain that you may have to fight in, you know, over. And so we took some chances. Now, does, that, does that mean I was a better commander than them? No, it's just, but I, I had faith in my guys. You know, it's, you talk about failure and, you know, I love baseball. So I'll, I'll use a baseball analogy here. You hit 400, you're going to, in your, over your lifetime, you're going to Cooperstown. You got a lifetime batting average. What, what's your failure rate? What's your failure rate? 60%. Now in our business, if you got a 60% failure rate, you're going away. Home plate is 17 inches. It's 17 inches in little league. It's 17 inches in high school. It's 17 inches in college. It's 17 inches in the pros. 17 inches is home plate. You can't throw a ball across 17 inches. You know, we don't make the plate bigger. You don't change your you know, expectations and you don't change the parameters. You make the people fit them. And, and then if they can make mistakes, it's okay to make mistakes. You know, certain things you can't make mistakes, of course, but, but you know, it's, uh, and you, and you mentioned the zero defect thing. And, and I, I think that that got a lot of, of use, you know, when you and I were junior officers, but I think today, especially with mission order, mission orders and, and, you know, uh, maneuver warfare and, and the commandant, what the commandant's doing. I'm watching some of what he's doing as, as, as we're changing some of our structure and everything. They're going to have to make room for, for people to, to be able to stretch themselves out. Because unless you're allowed to make a mistake, you're, you're not going to stretch, stretch yourself. So I, I, got, I got faith in the Marine Corps. I do. I do too. And, and I know that there's a lot of controversy going on about getting rid of tanks and uh, I can't find a single infantryman who is excited about the fact that tube artillery is going to be less and not more. <laughs> but uh, Or Cobra squadrons. That's right. But it's the, that sort of creativity, I think, is so important right now because I'll just use gear as an example. The GPS is, is a popular one, right? So instrumental to our current economy and even the cars we drive and everything now, but all born out of military technology that really didn't get into anybody's hands until Desert Storm, for the most part. And you look 30 years later how instrumental it is to the global economy. And I look and I think to myself, we just spent 20 years in sustained combat. And I don't know if I can identify a game changer, anything that's come out of that conflict that's new and can change the course of warfare or change the course of society or anything like that. I think we've improved on technology. We've improved on bombs. We've improved on things like that. I just think that there's been a, a lack of real creativity in war fighting that is just now starting to surface under our current commandant. There's a lot of creative thinking coming out of him and his group, and I applaud them for that, and I'm excited about that. And then I asked this question, okay, great. If we're going to have this big change in the Marine Corps and we're going to look at our ability to fight a, a fight completely different, who's going to figure that out? Well, it's not the commandant's working team that's going to figure it out. It's a bunch of corporal sergeants and lieutenants on the ground who are going to try things out. And so how much freedom are we going to give them? Right? Yeah, no, it's training. You know, Alfred Thayer Mahan said uh, one of my favorite quotes, I I'd rather have first-rate men in second-rate ships than second-rate men in first-rate ships. Clausewitz, 
said, what is the, 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 the human factor is always, you know, overrides the material. It comes down to like what you said, leader, the Lieutenant, the platoon commanders, the, the young NCOs, it's, it's training and, and they're going to have to train and they got to be able to make mistakes. So they got to be able to make mistakes. They got to be given second chances. Now, granted, we'll put parameters on all that, but the, I got to believe that these guys are smart. The people that are running the Marine Corps now, they're going to do well. We're, we're changing. You, you remember when you were a young officer, when you went through the basic school, we just started maneuver warfare. It was not, hey, diddle, diddle, right up the middle, two up, two up front, one in the back, you know, um, hot chow on the objective. It was your three-day war was probably a reconnaissance poll. And we ended up fighting that way. You know, when we went into Iraq in 2003, I, I can remember them telling us this is going to be a fast fight. And and Conway, who was the MEF commander, he spoke to us before we went. He go, in the absence of specific, I wrote this down and I've never forgot. In the absence of specific orders, attack north. That, that You talk about mission orders. We went so fast. We, did, we didn't have intel. We were just, I was chasing Do- Dunford up, up the highways. You know, I mean, we went through those guys like crap through a goose that's the way this next fight's going to be. It's not going to be very structured. It's not going to be, you know, all along the front. It's going to be, we're going to depend on those strategic corporals, lieutenants, sergeants, and, and, and people, you know, detached operations making decisions as best they can. I 100% agree with you. I, I hope that those sergeants and lieutenants are given the latitude to go out and be creative during their training. I think they will. I I mean, I got to believe they will. Can't have one without the other. It's funny because you say that about TBS and maneuver warfare because young second lieutenant Dave Armstrong always looked at maneuver warfare as my license to be as creative as I want to. A doctrinal pub that basically just said, no more hey diddle diddle up, like figure out another way. That's that's right. It's like you know, Captain Milstead becoming Major Milstead. You know, you got to figure out a way to go around it instead of through it. And it, it, we built sand tables. We had sand tables built. You know, at the basic school, and we would. It was a night and day from when Second Lieutenant Milstead went through there and turned, get online, and assault, assault through the objective. Oh my gosh! Uh, you probably transitioned out right, right as I was coming. I was TBS. I was Echo of ninety, but my company commander was Larry Azell. I'm sure you knew him. I really wish I was in better touch with him. He was such a role model and an icon for me personally. He was one of those people that I just sought to emulate. And talk about personalities couldn't have been any any farther apart. And I'll never forget because then on our nine-day war, I found myself sitting in the back of a Humvee with him because I was a radio op. There was something, for whatever reason, I was in a command group and he was there and we were sitting in a Humvee together. It was just him and I. He was in the front seat. I was in the back seat. And we we're sitting there. It was very late at night. And he turned around. He goes, Armstrong, are you awake? And I said, yes, sir. You know, because there's no way I was going to tell him I was asleep. He said, uh, I can't give you your first choice in MOS. You're going to be an artillery officer. I, I wanted to be a tanker and an Amtrak or an Amtracker. And and he said, I, I can't give you I can't give you your first choice because you're gonna be a great artillery officer. And this is the perfect MOS for you, and you're just gonna have to trust me on this. You're gonna be you're gonna be very well suited for the artillery community. I, I, I just I loved the guy. I just thought he was so fantastic. That's a leadership. I flash back because uh, second chance, one of the first second chances that second lieutenant Milstead got. Second Lieutenant Milstead overslept. 
So uh, we lived in Graves Hall, one guy to a room, but I overslept. So I woke up and, oh my God, my heart stops. It's like 8.30. You know, why did somebody come and get me? Where are they? They're out on the parade deck. They're doing, marching around. They're working with their sword. So I, you know, get dressed, go running out there, go up to my SBC. Sir, I've been UA the last hour and a half. Um, I overslept. He said, okay, Dick Lewis, we'll, we'll deal with it later. And, and that was it. Fast forward probably four months, coming in from the three-day war. We're riding in the cattle cars. Remember the cattle cars? You know, they don't have those anymore. You'll have to explain people with the cattle car, but we're riding the cattle cars. Right. It's basically just a tractor trailer trailer that have holes in it so people can breathe and benches for people to sit in. It was it was like a metro car. It was like a subway car, but and so and poles to hold on to when they took a car. So and and he would always ride back in the ca- in the in the in the cattle cars with Milstead. Yes, sir. Remember that hour and a half you owe me. This is the end of the three day war. It's Friday afternoon. Yes, sir. You got the M60s. Yes, sir. M60s machine guns to purple tune after so we all where do where do you go you go to to weapons cleaning right you go to weapons cleaning so after i clean my my weapon and turn it in now i'm i'm there with two M60s and i'm there till probably 10 o'clock, 10:30 at night because the lance corporal is just having a ball he can find carbon in places that you don't know that it should be carbon so I get done about 10.30 at night. I'm there by myself. I'm the last guy there. I'm cleaning these two M60s. So I gave him probably six hours for, for an hour and a half. But, you know, he could have he run my ass up or he could have really been hard on me. But I never forgot that. And, you know, and, and shame on me for not remembering that when you were talking about second chances. I've ne- never forgot. Milstead. Yes, sir. Remember that hour and a half you owe me? Yes, sir. You got the M60s. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's a good story. What year was it that you were a squadron commander? 1994 to 96. I was a squadron commander then, but I was the XO in 93. So basically 93 to 96, I was in the squadron. And you wanted to tell a story about how you fleeted up as the from the XO right into the CO job because that's un, that's an unusual. Well, I did. I, I I went in. I was the XO. You know, the XO runs a squadron. That that's a tough transition when you become the CO because you got to quit being the XO. It goes back to that delegate stuff. And and my XO, I had to let my XO do the day to day stuff. It, that was that was a tough transition. It, it was also I had to think about it. It was deliberate. You know, I had to be deliberate about, you know, I want to jump in there. That's XO stuff. And it's like when I was the the MAG commander, the Marine Aircraft Group commander, Marine Aircraft Group 29. We had HMLA 269 and we had Cobra Squadron. This was the Cobra Squadron. I had to be deliberate not to stick my nose in their business because I was a Cobra pilot. You tend to gravitate to what you're comfortable to. And I, and I would fly with everybody to the point that, that my first combat mission in Iraq as the as the MAG commander, I flew as co-pilot in a CH-46 instead of in a Cobra. You know, I tried to be deliberate in those those sorts of things. You know, you said that at some point, you know, talk about expanding mm-hmm. JJ did tie buckle. And I gave it some thought and what my contribution would be, and that was humor. 
before we attacked north, we were still on the on the on the ship. Yeah. Okay, so this is this is Iraq. Okay, in two thousand and three, and we were on the Saipan. I pulled everybody into the into the wardroom, all the pilots, and I said, and this has been this has been re- reminded me a couple times, and I said, does anybody in here think we're not going to war? Nobody raised their hand. I said, okay, we are, and I and I understand how you feel, and 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 we all have a lump in our stomach, but that doesn't mean that we got to have a stick up our ass. And so I expect you to maintain your sense of humor. You know, I, I maintain your, your enthusiasm and your patience with one another. I call it my hip principle. But humor, you know, it's the, uh, it's the lubricant when things get really, really tough. I think that we could use a little bit more of it sometimes. I do too. And, you know, as a service, as the Marines, actually all, all branches of the service, there's always something funny going on. Sometimes it's just really great leadership to just stop for a second and acknowledge the humor because I think it makes you as a leader, very relatable. I like to say, you know, age wrinkles your skin, but if you don't have enthusiasm for what you do and for life, it wrinkles your soul. And patience, like you said, is like humor. Patience, you gotta have patience with other people, but you gotta have patience with yourself. Because when the morning, when you shave, who's your toughest judge? Who's the one that's hardest on you? You. So you gotta be patient with yourself. And then you hit the, the nail on the, on the head, humor. You got to be able to laugh at yourself as much and as quickly as you, as you laugh at others. Right. And I think as a leader, one of the things that I think is really important as a leader to make sure that you're identifying is inappropriate enthusiasm. So if, if, you're, if you're leading people who are being enthusiastic about pointing out everything that's wrong with the training, those people can draw a crowd really quickly. When you're being critical of things and you're making fun of things, those people draw a crowd really, really easily. Yeah, it's being contagious and negatively. So be contagious, but be contagious in a, in a good way. And enthusiasm is contagious. And you've known that as a leader. The, the real leader, the successful leader, will take a negative situation and find some way to be enthusiastic about making it better or more realistic or doing something to make it good training in the military, good training, or even in the civilian world, you could you could do that. Yeah, we and we laugh about it, you know, make lemonade out of lemons, and you know, if it ain't raining, we ain't training. You know, you you've gotta you gotta have the attitude, and people pick up on that. They pick up on it, and so be contagious. You know, it's like I say, you know, calm like panic is contagious. Be contagious, but be contagious in a in a good way, and that and that is applicable as much to the boardroom, to, to the corporate America, as it is to the guys and gals wearing a uniform. I think so too. And a great recent example of that, and I'm sure you'll be able to relate to this more than most people, is I recently heard on the news a uh, recording of the transmission between the pilot of that United Airlines plane coming out of Denver where the engine exploded. So I just it just happened to be on, on social media and I saw it and, and I could hear the pilot talking back to the control tower. If I'm this pilot, this is this is what my radio transmission is going to sound like. I'm going to say the word "mayday" three times in 2.3 second milliseconds. It's going to mayday, mayday, mayday. That's going to be me, right, on the radio. I got an engine on fire. I'm turning around. Give me a heading. I need to get down. I'm at altitude. This guy's like this. Mayday, mayday, mayday. This is United flight, whatever it was, heavy. I've got an engine malfunction. I, I, I can't believe how calm you're being on the radio. Aviators will tell you. He knew it was being recorded, so he's got to sound cool. 
Right, right. Or like Captain Sully when he's like, I'm taking it into the Hudson, you know. I'm taking it into the Hudson. What? Yeah. You're making the point that calm, like panic, is is contagious. And panic can be a situation where you're in combat or panic can be in a situation in the boardroom where something's going really wrong and somebody needs to make a decision and people start spaz. Another way to say it is like, don't spaz out. I just think it's a really negative contribution to a problem when you're spazzing yeah. out or or you're not, you're panicking is, I guess, a way to say it. But the the enthusiasm and the patience and the humor, I think, are just important components to leadership from the perspective of the most successful leaders I saw were the people who were the most relatable. Well, you you, you said something that you wanted to be like easy. I, I like to say they won't remember what you said exactly, but they'll never, ever, ever forget how you made them feel. You've never forgotten you know, you, you can remember somewhat what he said and how he said it, but but that feeling, how, how he made you feel as a leader, you, you'll never forget that. No, I won't. I had a couple of interesting experiences with him that were imprinted. They're, they're my, some of my crystallizing moments. Do you recall the incident in Larry's TBS company where the lieutenant tried to kill himself by cutting, went down to the hawk and got drunk and then cut his neck open with a K-bar knife? No, I must have been gone. It was, it was Memorial Day weekend of 1990, the Monday night of Memorial Day weekend. And so we had only been at TBS. for Anyway, I was one of the first people into the room. So I didn't really even know. Major Zell was the company commander. Like He would come in and talk to us and leave. There, was no, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity for personal interaction at that point. You're still getting your pubs and everything at that point at TBS and maybe running the O course. And so I got called into his office because he, he obviously wanted to know everything about that. That was my first interaction with him. And I found him to be like really empathetic towards the whole situation, which I was kind of shocked about. Very early imprinting there. Then a week later, we had those, like you did, we had the sand tables in the company area and somebody would issue a tactical decision game and you would come in and you had to fill out your order on an index card. That's all the room you had. And you submitted it into a box if you, if you decided to participate in the TDG. And so I did one. I put it in the box. A couple of days later, Major Zell comes down to my BOQ room. So we're all alphabetical. So Armstrong, I'm right there. I'm basically on the command deck in my room. He comes down, knocks on my door, and he said, and it's like 7.30 at night, 8 o'clock. And I'm in PT gear. And he said, uh, hey, Lieutenant Armstrong, you got a second? I was like, oh, shit. Yes, sir. He's like, follow me. And starts walking me down to the command deck. I thought I was in trouble for something. I thought I had something to do, or potentially had something to do with the, the kid that tried to kill himself. And he walks into the sand table thing. He pulls my card out. And he goes, let's talk about this for a second. And walked me through one-on-one, -on -one, the two of us, no one else, sat there and walked me through for about 15 minutes what he thought about my plan. I thought this was good, but you should consider this. And I thought to myself, here's a guy that's a major and just took 15 or 20 minutes out of his day to come down and personally talk to me about something to make me a better officer. I thought... Well, if 15 or 20 minutes can, can make that sort of an impression on people, what can you do in an hour? If CEO or president you know, of a five-story five building spends 15 minutes a day walking around his, his spaces, he can make an enormous impact. I can't tell you the number of times I've talked to, to those kinds of guys and asked them, you know, when's the last time you walked the hangar deck or when did you get out? Well, I don't. Well, you can't lead from behind a desk. You need to get out walk around. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an important leadership trait. And, and Matt Cooper talks about that in my my first episode interview with him too. But uh, but I'm interested, MAG-29, was that your command that you had that you took into Iraq? How long had you been the MAG commander when the 
order to launching into Iraq. I took over MAG-29 in uh, June of 2000, and then the towers came down September. And we didn't go to war for, you know, 2003. I mean, it was March 2003, and it was 9-11, so it was a year later. So I'd been the MAG commander for, uh, oh, at least a year. In, in other words, when, when I brought the MAG home, say May, June, June May, whatever, and, and had my change of command about a month later or so. So it was uh, I took the MAG to war on the backside of the... Uh, of the tour. Okay. And so you had all the squadrons, Cobras, 53s, they were, they were all falling under your command, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, and that was the strength of what I called the Carolina Cavalry because we had 53s, we had heavy lift, we had CH-46s, had two CH-46 squadrons. So we had the HMMs and then we had the Cobras and the Hueys all in the same mag. The West Coast guys, they were different. One mag had had nothing but skids, and one forty six squadron or two forty six squadron, and then the 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 heavy lift was in another mag. But Amos could come to me and say, you know, hey, do this. I had some of everything, so I'm a big fan. I was a big fan of composite mags. I, it's not the way I was raised. You know, I was raised in a skid mag, and the only thing different is we had the OV tens for a while. Going into combat is. You know, obviously one of those things, and when you're the commander, there's so many things that, that are weighing on your mind. Do you recall any decisions that you had to make that were particularly difficult or more, were there any morally courageous decisions that you were faced with taking? Squadron commanders command. And I viewed myself, you know, somewhat centralized command, decentralized control. I, I commanded, but they, they were, they were controlled. But that first night of the war was some of the, um, worst flying it was mandatory mission. It was, it was, if we wouldn't have, have started the war, I wouldn't have let those guys fly, but we had to fly and we did fly. And we had, we actually had a fratricide that first night. One of my Cobra crews, they schwacked an American tank. Now the guy had his turret facing South and he was driving South, but the weather was so bad and they gooned it up. Thank goodness. They used what, what's called a blast flag warhead instead of a, you know, a, a shape charge, it, it stopped the tank, didn't hurt anybody. We heard that it was a fratricide. Of course, I immediately assumed it was from one of the others. And uh, it, it wasn't, it was our guys. That's another example of a second choice because we put them on the bench for a couple of days to let them calm down and then put them back on the horse and put them back out there. And General Amos, who was the wing commander, supported me in that. My hands were tied. We were, we were going to war. But the weather was dog shit. And, and the guys, when they landed back aboard the boat, I was there in the ready room talking to them. And they were just like, Skipper, that was that was hairy. And so all of your missions launched off the boat. You were in a land-based mag? No, no. The, the, we fought the first, probably the first six or seven days off boat. Had some crews in that I left ashore that I couldn't get back out because of that sandstorm. And then per the, the plan, we, we came off of the boat and went into uh, Jaliba. Some people call it Jollibaugh, but it was Jaliba. I was responsible for putting my group there. And then after that, we moved up to Al-Kut. And then from Al-Kut, we moved over up to Salmon Pack and supported Dunford and uh, Madison and Kelly and all them when they went into the Baghdad. And then we actually supported Kelly's crowd when they went on up to Tikrit. To, to so we went 400, about 450 nautical miles into, into Iraq off of the boat. You know, coming back to the second chances thing, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up again. 
it gives me an opportunity to kind of introduce a new question. I have this fascination with asking the question of folks like you about Mavericks. Um, and when I was talking to General Spies, I said, we revere Mavericks in the movies, Gunny Highway. And I, I was joking with him that we actually have a character named Maverick in Top Gun. It's literally a Maverick, Commander, Weather Squadron, or Mag. Did you have any Mavericks? And what what is some advice that you would give somebody now who's possibly leading a Maverick? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I've been described as a Maverick at times. And I've been very blessed to work for some people that recognized that there was something that, that I had as far as leadership or whatever, and, and give me enough r- rope, let me let me go out and do it. And, you know, guys like uh, McCorkle and, and, and General Amos, I mean, General Amos, he's been one of my mentors as well, you know, but um, I've been described as a maverick. And when I was a squadron commander, there was one guy in particular that was a maverick and none of the, none of the squadron commanders wanted to. And I said, I'll take him because I recognize talent. And with a maverick, often it's a, uh, it's a unique talent. You, you know, now you've you got to make them feel valued and appreciated and you empower them. And it goes back to a, the sin versus a crime, to, you know, that we talked about a little bit earlier. Lead people like you want to be led. You know, I talked about that I had people that led me and empower these mavericks. I should have started this off. There's good and there's bad mavericks. You know, there's there's a guy that's a bad maverick. The, the return on risk, it, it's not worth it. But there's the good guy. There's the lieutenant that puts on captain bars and walks up to the position and says, my name's Captain Armstrong. Brief me about your defensive position. <laughs> it's still funny to think I did that. Yeah. Now that's a bit of a maverick. You know, there's good mavericks and there's bad mavericks. And, and mavericks would tend to gravitate towards me sometimes. So I've always had a couple of mavericks around me and I've always found a place for them. One, I, I just can't get too specific, but I took him to Iraq with me when I was the, the wing commander, you know, and uh, and he performed magnificently. And I had people tell me, are you crazy taking that guy? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. We say we say that also about, you know, some of the Marines that we work with. We say like, well, he's a field Marine. You know, he's, he's a terrible garrison Marine. He's a great field Marine. One quick story on that. Remember the old ASC-26, that big comm thing that they... They put in the back of a Huey. Nobody could ever get it to work. No, I never saw it work once. I had a uh, avionics Marine and he was a corporal and he was about, he's probably 25 pounds overweight. You know, we had him on the BCB, which is what the body weight program or whatever, but he could make that thing work. He's the only guy that make that thing work. And I was a squadron commander, group commander. I'll never forget one time said, Hey, listen, we're, we're going to do this thing. And, and I need. And, and of course, the guy could never pass a PFT, and I, I'd send him on leave, you know, during the IGs and everything. And the group commander go, I want one of your Hueys and, and the ASC and get that fat corporal that, that you don't think I know about to make sure that he's in the airplane and that thing works because I, I want that ASC working. You know, I thought I'd been pulling a fast one on the group commander and he's, there was a bit of a maverick, right? Yeah, exactly. Any good advice for a leader out there right now who may have a maverick in his, his command and how to help them succeed or, or how to steer them right? Lead as you want to be led. Treat the guy, you know, call him in and tell him. You and I both know that, you know, you're a maverick. I'm, I'm laying it out on the line for you. That's the other thing to do that I would do is personalize it. I'm taking risk with you. Don't do this to me. I believe in you. I trust you. And I believe that you can contribute. Don't screw me. 
take this opportunity and, and run with it. And if you do that, I'll cover your ass. I'll, I'll, I'll watch your back and I'll take care of you. And, and that's what you do. But you be upfront. You be honest with them and say, I'm going to come down on you hard. You're gone. And this is your chance. Because often a maverick will, will realize you're his last chance. You're his second chance or his third or fourth chance. I want to recap some of the things that I thought you said that were really sage and, and important for any of the listeners who find themselves in, in, as young leaders in the military, young officers in the military, or young, young leaders in the civilian world who are looking to establish their own personality traits, the opportunity to listen to how Second Lieutenant Milstead became Lieutenant General Milstead some of the things that you found are important. We talked in the first episode about how it's okay to not know the answer to something if you're being truly honest. We talked about there's a huge difference between management and leadership and how manage, management is the management of things and leadership is the leadership of people. Those are two different things that can be meshed together inappropriately, more so on the civilian side than anything else, and how you have to draw distinctions between those two things we moved into second chances and you made the comment, there are things that are sins and there are things that are crimes. And, and I've never heard it uh, articulated like that. I think it's such a phenomenal encapsulation of those two things because they're two totally different things. We then, in the, in the beginning of this part, we talked about risk-taking and you made some great analogies using baseball where he said if you were a 400% batting average, in other words, you got on the base for 40% of the time, that means you're a 60% loser and you'd probably go to Cooperstown, but in a lot of other places, if you're a 60% failure, you're probably not long for any leadership job. And then you talked about how home plate is the same size all the way from little league up to the, up to the major leagues. You made the point how leaders don't ever change their expectations. And I thought that was brilliant. We talked a little bit about humor and that was one of the components that you said is not necessarily a word in JJ did tie buckle or our leadership principles. We talked a little bit about your HEP principle, which was humor, enthusiasm, and patience, which is a fantastic way for anybody looking to develop their own leadership traits and principles and leadership styles to think about those three words and think about how important it is to be a relatable person as a leader. And you told a, a, a really interesting story. We got back to Second Chances again, where you talked about a fratricide incident in Iraq. And I asked you the question about, did you have any mavericks? And you admitted that you were a maverick yourself, which was really refreshing to hear because I have been told by some of my friends that have worked with you that they always felt you were a maverick too. And it was interesting to hear you say that. And you again made the point that there's a huge difference between sin and a crime. And then you said, I wish that you had said this in the beginning, but it was lead like you want to be led. And gosh, that just seems so simple. And it is. Yeah. I look back on that and I think, okay, if three-star Boomer Milstead was standing in front of a classroom of brand new second lieutenants at TBS, and they, they've been there for, let's just say they're graduating in a month. So they've been there a while and they're getting ready to graduate. They all know their MOSs. And they've asked you to talk to them. I would imagine you would say that. I imagine that you would talk about the HEP principle and how important enthusiasm is and what else would you tell them? So here's, here is 40 year Marine veteran, Boomer Milstead, three-star general, accomplished maverick, and is now being asked by a bunch of people who could potentially serve 40 years themselves, the next 40 years. 
What are you telling them? I'd tell them, I already said it, but people, you know, people may not remember exactly what you, what you say, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. So to always remember that, I tell them that, posi- that leadership is a position of service. Servant leadership gets a lot of talk now, but you know, my wife and I have, have viewed our time in, in, in positions as squadron commander, group commander, you know, commanding the, the recruiting commander, kind of as a ministry. You know, shame on me. My faith didn't come out a great deal, and we've talked for almost two hours, but maintain your priorities. My priorities is my faith, then my family, then the Marine Corps. And I would tell these guys that. So your priorities, your priorities, you know, what are your priorities? Maintain your priorities. Your priorities should be your, you know, your faith. It's your your family and your country, and then the Marine Corps. We've all worked around people that said the Marine Corps comes before their family. Yeah, bullshit. They're putting their own selfish ambitions ahead of their families. So maintain your priorities. Humility. That's another word that, you know, we don't like to touch. But, you know, it's like water. Sink the lowest level. You know, remain humble. Nobody's where they they actually got. You get to where you go in a 40-year career, you're carried by a bunch of Marines and you're carried by your family. The other thing that I that I used to would talk to him about is just real quick was is bluegills. I call it my bluegill analogy. My grandfather used to love to fish and he, he'd catch a bunch of bluegills. And I, I told him one time, I said, they're, they're not very big, but he goes, but at the end of the day, they add up, you know? And, and so I think leadership is like that. It's like bluegills. It's very few of our, of what we do is follow me, man. We're going to take the hill. You know, it's, 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 leading the charge up San Juan. It's little things day in and day out. My wife told me, she's been a great source of some some great ones. She told me once, she said, all too often you don't realize you're a role model until it's too late. There's great wisdom in that, I think. You don't have to be the best horseman to lead the cavalry. You know, that's important as a Cobra pilot. Hey, I'm the colonel. I'm, I'm leading, you know, or I'm the squadron commander. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, in the ready room. There's captains in there that that know that airplane better than me. But I'm leading the cavalry, but I don't necessarily have to be the the best horseman. Makes sense? Yes. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. You know, I, I, I write stuff down. You know, there's 162 games in a baseball season. Everything matters. What is it last year the, or two years ago? After 162 games, the Nationals play the Brewers in a one-game playoff to see who gets to go on. After 162 games. So everything matters. Every hit ball, every pass ball, every... Here's one as a, as a commander, and here's one if you're running a company. You know, the enemy of good is not evil. It's perfection. It doesn't have to be perfect. And then leadership, the most succinct definition of leadership that I have ever seen, it was Douglas Southall Freeman, you know, the, the historian, and he wrote Lee's Lieutenants. And he, when he, 1949, I believe he was speaking to the graduating class of the Naval Academy, said, you know, know your stuff, take care of your men, and be a man. Now, granted, you know, we have women today, but you get my point. Know your stuff, take care of your men, and be a man. And then we talked about never get too busy to lead. Strength doesn't always always look like you expect it to either. And and remember, some of your some of your mentors and some of your role models and some of the people you'll learn a great deal from are junior to you. 
they don't have to be senior to you. You know, all, all too often, especially as young lieutenants, you know, we think, or as young captains, well, the major or the colonel or whatever, hey, that gunny, that staff sergeant, there's lessons to be learned from them. And I, and I guess the, one, of, one of the last, I'll, I'll end it with example is powerful. You know, leadership is caught as, as much as taught. It, it, leadership by example. And I'll end with that. It, it's as simple as that. It's, it's lost on a lot of people. It's ingrained in us as Marines. Most of us are pretty successful at it. If there, if there is one hallmark of leadership, I believe it is leading by example. I like when you talk about being humble too, because it's impossible to set the perfect example every single time. I think when you realize that you've made a mistake as a leader or you haven't set the best, best example, to be humble about it, recognize it, admit it. Admit it. Some people think that that's, that's a weakness, and you, but your Marines will view it as a strength and they'll appreciate it. When you admit that you were wrong and to stand in front of a squadron and say, I blew that call and you had to pay for my bad decision, you know, and I did that one time. You know, I had several Marines come up to me afterwards and said, that's pretty cool, sir. I did that as a battery commander myself. And, and I learned a lot from just standing up and saying, you know what? Boy, I made a mistake and I, I know that it created a lot of extra work and you guys paid for it. And uh, I learned from it. I'll never do that again. And that was it. Amen. And everybody looked at me like, good on the We'll follow you. I'd like to think that they they did. So, But this was fantastic, sir. I, I really appreciate this. Lieutenant General Robert Boomer Milstead, 40-year career in the Marine Corps as a, an aviator, Cobra pilot, Anglico Marine, fantastic general officer with, with some great stories and some fantastic vignettes about leadership. The setting the example is the most powerful part of leadership, I think, just sums it all up really nicely, sir. And I just want to tell you how much I appreciate your time. Uh, this has been a real pleasure. People will really enjoy hearing this. And I'm really glad we connected. I'm glad you took the time to help me out with this project. It was a pleasure. It was fun. Thank you. I'm 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 humbled that you you'd ask me. Well, sorry, you come you came highly recommended by uh, by several friends. So, well, Semper Fidelis, sir. Thank you again for your time. Ooh.